Hello, friends and colleagues, and welcome to Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. My name is Luke Johnson, I am one of your hosts, and this is a bonus episode. This is a lecture that I gave to some of the pediatric residents at the University of Utah, where I'm an assistant professor. This is a lecture about dermatologic emergencies in the pediatric population. I made the decision to not make this lecture available in video format because it includes a lot of photographs of my personal patients, and while the families gave me permission to use their photos for educational purposes, I just decided I didn't want it floating around there on the internet for anybody. So hopefully the audio will still be of interest to you. Here we go. All right, I'm going to go ahead and get started. So my name is Luke Johnson, and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Dermatology here at the University of Utah. I'm a pediatric dermatologist. There's three of us in the department. And we're going to talk about dermatologic urgencies and emergencies in children. So I wish some of my extended family members could hear this talk because when I tell them I'm a dermatologist, they say, oh, no emergencies there, huh? Well, after watching this, they would realize how dead wrong they are. Oop, let's see, how can I advance? Uh, the end of the slide. There we go. So um, I have no particular conflicts of interest, except for that perhaps I have a podcast about dermatology research. It's called Dermosphere. It's intended for dermatologists and for the dermatologically curious. So some of the information that gets included in my talks is just stuff I discovered over the course of doing the podcast. And if you want to check it out, you would be more than encouraged to do so and join the thriving, vibrant Dermosphere community. All right, so we're going to review some dermatologic processes that you can consider emergent or urgent and would benefit from prompt treatment and or referral and or consultation, depending on where the patient is. I pulled photos from all kinds of places, and I'd like to just have a brief digression about the historical bias in some dermatologic image databases. So for a long time, it was mostly like white people taking pictures of white people when it came to dermatologic issues. And so those our textbooks are predominantly of Caucasian skin and so on. And there's been recognition of that for a while now, probably in the past 10 or 20 years, there's been kind of this recognition and push toward more inclusion of what we in dermatology call skin of color, darker skin types. Though, of course, more recent events in the world have increased the call for that kind of action. So it's happening. And I've made an effort, for example, to use a particular textbook that's all about skin of color to include some images. But one of the challenges <clears throat> is that I like to include patients that I've seen. And I trained in Texas and in Portland, Oregon, and now I'm here in Salt Lake City, and all those patients are pretty darn white. So there's some bias just because of that. Please forgive it. I should say, if anybody has questions, I assume you can ask them via Zoom, and our few audience members are also welcome to chime in at any time. So what I'm going to do is just go through cases of various diseases, and then we'll talk about them. So our first case is a five-year-old boy. He comes into the emergency room. He's been feeling kind of crappy for a few days, probably got tested for COVID three times. But today, he's much worse and has new skin lesions. He's just been taking stuff for his fever, basically. But he's still febrile. He looks sick. And as you can see, he's got some problems on his skin. Obviously, these aren't all the same patient, but pictures of the same condition. So it's hard as a presenter to feel like you're really engaging people over Zoom. But think to yourself, wow, this is a dermatology presentation. I would like to take this opportunity to practice my budding dermatologic lexicon. 
and use words like papules and plaques and crust and so on, and think how you would describe these sorts of skin findings. So for example, you might say that this patient has bullae on their cheeks. Remember bullae is the dermatologic term for blister. You can say they have chylitis, inflammation of the lips. They have crusting and heme crust. This hand has red-orange patches and macules, those sorts of things. But of course, these days we can take pictures and include them in the chart. And as we know, a picture is worth one kilo word. So this is Stevens-Johnson syndrome. I decided to lead with Stevens-Johnson syndrome because otherwise I figured the audience would all be like, ooh, I bet this next one's Stevens-Johnson syndrome. When's he gonna talk about Stevens-Johnson syndrome? That's the one I know. So we're just gonna get it out of the way early. My name's Luke Johnson. And this is a picture of me, back when I had a little beard, with my uncle, Stephen Johnson. So it's impossible for me not to think about Uncle Steve whenever I talk about Stevens Johnson syndrome. Doesn't help you guys very much to see a picture of him, I guess. Um, if one of us had our skin falling off, that would probably be more helpful. So just imagine that one of us is losing their skin and maybe that'll help you remember this condition. So this is a bad thing, as you probably know. You've got skin involvement, and by definition, you have to have mucosal involvement too, and at least two sites. So you talk about the mouth, the nose, the eyes, the anogenital region, get mucocutaneous involvement. Usually people with Stevens-Johnson syndrome have a prodrome. So I think this is an important way to tell it apart from some of the things that people sometimes mistake for it. So people usually feel sick beforehand, and their skin is usually painful. So I think that's a way you can separate it from some other mimickers as well. They're not itchy, they're not, my skin just doesn't feel like anything, it just has a rash. Their skin usually hurts. And then after this prodrome, they develop the signs of Stevens-Johnson syndrome that we all mostly recognize. So this is a patient from here, and this is a patient that I initially misdiagnosed my embarrassment as eczema coxsackium. I think mostly because he looked so healthy. So I was used to giving this lecture and saying, people with Stevens-Johnson syndrome are sick. But it turns out kids have a lot of resilience and they don't always look as sick as maybe they should. So he was running around the room and swinging Nerf weapons around and playing video games where he was controlling a goat that was like jumping on top of buildings and giggling about it. Um, so I just didn't think he was sick enough for Stevens Johnson syndrome. He evolved this, he didn't look like this when I originally met him, but you can see he's got the significant crusting around the mouth. He's got fairly extensive skin lesions. He's got some crust, should be concerned by this point. Is just a closer up look at his mouth. Okay, so that's Stevens Johnson syndrome. Next case we're going to talk about is a 13 year old girl who, over four days, developed some more symptoms that you could call prodromal or maybe just URI type symptoms. But she had a spreading rash and skin tenderness. So she came to the emergency room. Uh, and this photograph is, of course, a few days into her hospitalization. Spoilers, she gets admitted. Um, this was the first patient in the emergency room that I was consulted on after I joined the faculty here. And as a brief aside, this patient showed me that our system of medical training kind of works. Because the resident who presented her to me said, yeah, this is probably a viral exam, I think we can manage her at home. And then I looked in and I was like, this woman is sick. I think she, you know, we need to look into Stevens-Johnson syndrome or something similar. So stick, stick with the training, don't fail early. That's the moral of the story. So here she is a few days into her hospital stay. You can see she's losing skin diffusely on her body. She has bull eye. 
and she's obviously pretty sick. She's got all kinds of tubes coming at her. Dermatologists don't have to know what those tubes are, but I assure you they look like tubes. So this is sort of the extra bad version of Stevens-Johnson syndrome, which is called toxic epidermal necrolysis. It's possible that Stevens-Johnson syndrome and toxic epidermal necrolysis, or TEN, are on a spectrum. It's also possible that they're somehow a little bit different, just very similar in some ways. But this is basic, you can think of it as basically really bad Stevens-Johnson syndrome. So they have more extensive necrosis of their skin. So the top layer of this girl's skin is dead, which is why it's no longer attached to the stuff underneath and is peeling away. They have this Nikolsky sign. So if you push on a part of their skin and it sort of moves beneath your finger the way skin isn't supposed to do and you think, whoa, something's not right there, that's Nikolsky sign. Again, they usually have a prodrome, but it's not as long. And mucosal involvement is a bit less common and less severe as Stevens-Johnson syndrome, but they still have it. So we have these definitions where if you have 5% of your body, it's Stevens-Johnson syndrome and 10 to 15, it's overlap. And more than that, the, pay attention to the diagram. Doesn't look like this particular slide was updated. Sorry. So less than 10% Stevens-Johnson, 10 to 30 TEN, SJS overlap and over 30% TEN. So how does this start? Oftentimes we think of it as a drug reaction. So there's something about the drug that the body's immune system really doesn't like, and then it occurs. This is a rule in a lot of our drug-related dermatologic issues. The drug exposure usually occurs one to three weeks before the skin manifestations develop. That's true for like a morbilliform drug rash. It's true for this. So it's fairly common that we get consulted on something, and when we're trying to figure out which medications they were, we can eliminate a lot of them because they were started like two days ago. And while it's not a 100% true, still it's pretty likely. And in fact, people not, might not even be taking the medicine that originally triggered this. So here's a little picture of how this goes. So normally, this is the top layer of the skin. It would be just attached to this part, right? Because that's how your skin is. It's attached to itself. Feel your skin. Ah, be thankful that it's not falling off. Then this layer of skin dies, and so it's no longer attached to this, and so fluid just fills up the area, and it turns into a blister or bulla. And then that bulla eventually just ruptures, and it's, then you see this denuded epithelium underneath. So there's been a lot of drugs that have been associated with it. The most commonly described in kids are sulfa drugs and anticonvulsants. In dermatology, we talk about, quote, dirty drugs that just have more potential side effects, at least in the dermatologic world. Don't really know if other specialties refer to dirty drugs and whatever they're particularly interested in. The sulfa drugs, anticonvulsants tend to be pretty dirty, cause all kinds of dermatologic issues. Um, some others have been reported as well. Though, as this slide mentions, in kids, SJS can be caused by infections a lot more commonly than in adults. And that gets overlooked sometimes, I think, because people are searching for a drug exposure. And you should definitely look for one. But if you don't find it, maybe it's just an infection. Just an infection. This case of TEN, which is pretty significant, was she had no known drug exposure. So we ended up blaming it on some kind of URI. Scary. So what should you do? Well, do your good medical work, figure out their meds, get a CVC and a CMP, um, because there are other severe drug eruptions that can play around with those parameters, and sometimes people can be losing so much skin that they have electrolyte problems and things like that. And then if they have a lot of mucosal involvement, you should do a chest x-ray and mycoplasma titers. Why is that? 
Some infections can cause a similar entity. We'll talk more about it a little bit later in the talk. So, if you would like to know how likely it is that your patient with SJS or TEM is going to die, you might be tempted to use the scoring system. It's called the score pin, and you can see that it includes all these factors, and then depending on how many points they get tells you what their mortality rate is. This was developed in adults, but a few years ago, there was this nice retrospective chart review of 60 to 70 patients where they used the score 10 in children from their institution and found that it still worked in kids, even though none of them gets the point for being over 40 years of age. Interestingly, they also tried adjusting some parameters that were more in line with pediatric physiology, like adjusting the heart rate down, because as you can see, heart rate 120 beats per minute and above, many little kids just have a resting heart rate of that high. Um, but they found that even their adjustments didn't improve the accuracy at all. So of course, it's a retrospective chart review of not a ton of patients, but still, I feel like you can probably use the score 10 for kiddos as well. So what should you do? Treat the infection if there is one, remove the drugs if you can find an obvious culprit. Otherwise, do the standard dermatology approach of remove all unnecessary drugs, like probably not the chemotherapy that's keeping them alive, but maybe other stuff if you can. The longer the drug stays in the system, the worse their outcome. So in a way, there's nothing much you can do except be aware of the prognosis. If somebody's taking a drug with a long half-life, so like some of those anticonvulsants, I might have a worse outcome than if people have a shorter half-life and those presumably toxic metabolites are eliminated earlier. SJS can be fairly mild, but it's often not. And so it's, we're lucky that we have a burn center here where they're used to dealing with people whose skin is falling off so that they can treat them appropriately. The only thing anybody can agree on <clears throat> when it comes to how to treat patients with SJS and TEN is that they need intensive supportive care. Can affect the mucous membranes, so ophthalmology is often involved. Sometimes you need to get gynecology or urology depending on the extent of involvement in the genital area. And ocular complications are especially common, so talk to opto. And this little flow sheet's here, not so that you can see it because it's far too small, but just so you know that there are resources out there if you're wondering quite what to do. I like cyclosporin to treat SJSTEN, mostly because of this article, which came out in 2017. So this is a fun natural experiment in Madrid, Spain. So in Madrid, there were two primary hospitals. This one up here, Hospital La Paz Madrid, I'm mispronouncing it, sorry, Madridians and the Hospital Universitario de Getafe. And one of them used cyclosporin on their patients and the other did not. And people just randomly got taken to one or the other. It didn't even seem to matter like which one was geographically closer. It was just kind of wherever there was space available or the ambulance drivers were able to call over. What they found was that the people with cyclosporin did a lot better than the people who weren't. And mostly the people who weren't were on steroids. So I think this is a pretty good indicator that cyclosporin is what we should currently be doing for SJSTEN. We're lucky though that there's a lot more research into this with multi-institutional collaborations that have been looking into cyclosporin and as well as some other treatment approaches like etanercept, which is a TNF inhibitor biologic that has a bit of data in adults. So I like cyclosporin. Three to five milligrams per kilogram per day for seven days, no taper. I put kids on cyclosporin for months. So a week's worth of cyclosporin seems fairly safe to me. So corticosteroids sort of have mixed data, IVIG as well. So this is a published studies with IVIG. Um, the green numbers are the studies that have shown an ink or a benefit compared to the mortality that would be predicted by the SCORE10 system. And the red 
worse mortality. So again, mixed data, but some people still use it anyway. The pathophysiology at least makes sense. Okay, that's all about SJSTEN. Anybody want to ask a question? No, good. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. So here's another case. 12-year-old boy comes in, he's got a cough, he's got fever, his eyeballs are injected, he's got sores around the mouth, he's febrile, his pulse ox is low, he's got lung crackles, seems like maybe he has pneumonia, but he's also got some skin and mucosal stuff, and this is his chest x-ray. I'm pretty sure that's maybe a heart in the middle. So this is what his skin and mucous membranes look like. So what is this? The mycoplasma-induced rash and mucositis. Very good. So MERM is why you get mycoplasma tests on people who you think might have SJS. But this is not nearly as bad as SJS. It's mucosal predominant. They have very limited skin findings. Their course is overall good. They don't really need the intensive supportive care that people with SJS get. They don't really have sequela afterward. They do well. It clouds our literature, though, because historically people used to call this SJS. So any study that came out about SJS before about the year 2005 is probably conflicted about which actual patient studies they included. More recently, we've been discovering that it's not just mycoplasma that can do this, but it's most commonly mycoplasma, but other infections can do it as well. And so maybe we should start calling it reactive infectious mucocutaneous eruption or RIME. And here are some photographs of the same thing in different skin tones. You can see that they don't have a lot of stuff on their skin, at least in the photographs, but the eyes and the mouth tend to jump out at you. All right, again, stop me if you guys have questions, otherwise I'm just gonna keep rolling. So there's a baby, I love babies, but I don't like when they're sick. So she's been feeling sick for a few days, and this morning, mom says her skin started to fall off. So here she is in the emergency room. She doesn't look happy. Maybe her skin is falling off. Any ideas what this is? Staph scalded skin. Very good. So you get staph scalded skin syndrome when you have a staph infection in some part of the body. And those bacteria elaborate toxins. They're called exotoxins. They get into your blood and then they travel all over the body. So you can have an infection in your nose, for example, and then you can start getting this exfoliation anywhere. Usually it begins in the flexures like the axillae, the neck flexures, begins periorally as well. No mucosal involvement as a rule because the exotoxin doesn't affect the mucosa. So this is one way to differentiate it from SJS, though sometimes people's lips can be kind of dry because they're sick breathing through the mouths and stuff. And you treat it with anti-staph antibiotics. A lot of people use clindamycin. There's this thought that clindamycin helps tamp down the toxin production of the bacteria. I think the data is pretty soft that that actually happens. So I usually try to pump this question to the primary team who consulted us and just say, use appropriate anti-staphylococcal antibiotics based on local sensitivity. The cleavage is through the stratum corneum. So here is normal healthy skin, and here's what it looks like under the microscope. So this top layer is called the stratum corneum, and then this here is the epidermis. This is the dermis, and then this is what's underneath the dermis, the subcutis, which is mostly fat and stuff. So in staph scalded skin, the split is right here. And in TEN and SJS, the epidermis, all of this stuff, all dies and then peels away. So in staph scalded skin, 
what you're looking at when you look at what's underneath the stuff that peeled away is epidermis. And in SJS, you're looking at dermis. And they look different. So here's our patient with staph scalded skin, and here's our patient with TEN. It's similar, but it's still different. The dermis is pinker, and the dermis tends to be this pale pink color regardless of the patient's skin phototype, regardless of how dark their skin is. Whereas that's not true of, with just the stratum corneum peeling away. This is, I feel like if you look close and pretend, you could feel like this is a deeper injury than this one. All right, so that's staph scalded skin. Usually good news, treat with an antibiotic, people get better, they don't have sequelae, huzzah. So now I have a little kiddo, 15 months old, just like all the rest of these kids, he's had some prodrome for the past few days, fever. We know he has atopic dermatitis because he's seen dermatology a little bit, but they seem to have gotten it under fairly good control. But now he's got this. What's going on here? Everybody is thinking eczema herpeticum. Very good. So here's how I explain atopic dermatitis to parents. If you look in a dermatology textbook about what causes atopic dermatitis, you find a gigantic list of things. In my opinion, the main underlying problem is that the skin barrier is leaky. So because the skin barrier is leaky, it lets water evaporate away, so people with atopic dermatitis get dry, and it lets other stuff get in, which is irritating and creates the itchy red rash of eczema. So we have to treat eczema by restoring the skin barrier with bathing and moisturizing techniques. But the fact that the skin is leaky allows bacteria and viruses to travel through it as well. So people with atopic dermatitis can get impetigenized fairly routinely, and they can also have viruses like herpes just run through all that leaky skin and cause this widespread outbreak. You can see it with some other viruses as well, though HSV is the most common, and it looks like these punched out clustered erosions, polycyclic. So imagine the vesicles that you see of the normal herpes virus, unroofed, turned into a crusty scab, and a bunch of them. Also, sometimes you have these umbilicated papules with it. Um, the other virus that causes this fairly commonly, anybody know? Coxsackie, so eczema coxsackium, we call it. That's the hand, foot, mouth disease virus. So in kids with eczema, sometimes it's hand, foot, mouth, and everywhere else disease. So you can see in this picture, you can appreciate some of the umbilicated papules, perhaps, and sort of vesicles and pseudovesicles. It can be pretty severe or it can be very minimal. I've seen patients who come in and have atopic dermatitis and you find like one vesicle on their dorsal hand and you think, well, I better swab that and it comes back positive, but otherwise they've been acting normal. Patients you guys probably are more likely to see are those that get hospitalized for it, especially like infants because they have such limited reserve. It makes a lot of sense to admit them to the hospital so that you can monitor their IV status, make sure they get their acyclovir, which of course is how you treat them can affect the eye, of course, so anything that's remotely close to the eye, we usually complex ophthalmology on, and they usually say, like, agree with your plan for acyclovir, dum-dums, but sometimes they do, you know, eye drops and whatever else ophthalmology does. So swabbing for HSV, these lesions often get super infected as well, so swabbing for bacteria, and then treat that if you find it as well. Treat the underlying atopic dermatitis. There is no consensus, as far as I can tell, among pediatric dermatologists as when it's safe to start using topical steroids, but most of the pediatric dermatologists that I've talked to have said after the lesions have crusted over. So I guess that's what I say. Before then, just use a nice bland emollient. Vaseline is my favorite. 
somebody once said to me, when you talk about eczema herpeticum, can you talk about other herpes stuff too? Because it's confusing. And it is kind of confusing. Uh, the varicella virus is also a herpes virus. So herpes viruses all, for better or worse, I guess it's for worse, live in our dorsal root ganglia and other ganglia, and so it can become reactivated, which is where a lot of this issue comes from. So if you have HSV infection, the initial HSV infection doesn't really have a special name, and all the subsequent ones that come from it are still just called herpes. But if you have an initial varicella infection, that's called chickenpox, and if you have the reactivation varicella infection, that's called shingles or zoster. So herpes, we're used to thinking of it as being on the mouth or maybe in the genitals, but it can be anywhere on the skin, clustered, vesicular, erythematous base, pretty common stuff. And then chickenpox is pretty rare now that most people, fortunately, get vaccinated. And what you see are these widespread vesicles in the body that are in various stages of healing. Every dermatology textbook that talks about chickenpox says various stages of healing. And that's to differentiate it from smallpox, which hopefully none of us will ever see, but in smallpox, all the vesicles are in the same stage. But who knows, perhaps it will be biological warfare and we'll have to identify it. Sure hope not. Uh, people with chickenpox get sick. It's supposed to look like dewdrops on a rose petal. So here's a little vesicle on an erythematous base. And I know pediatric residents and medical residents just don't get out to look at a lot of roses. So this is what a rose petal looks like. And here's a little dewdrop on it. You can imagine they look kind of similar. This is an airborne virus. So the virus actually leaves the skin lesion and travels through the air. So people who are pregnant, for example, shouldn't be hanging around people with chickenpox because they're contagious. And they're contagious until all the lesions are crusted over. This is true with shingles as well. So watch it. Looks different on darker skin. So shingles, this is a reactivation we mentioned before, usually painful, though not always. It usually has vesicles, but not always. So sometimes people just have like this unilateral chest pain and you end up deciding it's shingles later on. People aren't as sick, of course, with shingles, but it can disseminate and spread around, especially if the patient's immunocompromised. Also, we're used to thinking of it as all the vesicles just being in one dermatome. So if you see some in other areas of the dermatome, you really start wondering about your diagnosis. But it turns out that it's not uncommon for it to spread a little bit to neighboring dermatomes. So trust your instincts. All right, that's all the stuff I want to talk about herpes viruses. Next, I want to talk about an eight-year-old person who has had a rash on the palms for a day, also crusting up his lips. He's got a cold sore. He's got a little bit of a temperature. This is the sort of thing he looks like. What's this? EM which stands for erythema multiforme. So this is an immune reaction to some kind of infection, and it's almost, well, I shouldn't say almost always. The majority of cases are caused by HSV, though there are many other infectious and some even non-infectious triggers that have been described. But HSV, especially HSV-1, is the most commonly described, usually shows up a few days after people get cold sores, though in my experience, People often don't actually have cold sores, but they have like a history of them. And so you assume there's something going on there that's triggering the immune system here. So in dermatology, we refer to typical target lesions and also some atypical target lesions. So a typical target, just like the target 
uh, grocery store icon. Sadly, they're not paying me, but they have three zones, central zone, and then a zone of clearing, and then a circle around it, a target. Um, whereas atypical targets usually have only two zones, and those are more associated with things like SJS. EM, so when people's immune systems are reacting against an infection, oftentimes the outbreak is symmetric. So that's true in like a viral exanthem or Giannotti Crosti syndrome, and it's true in erythema multiforme as well. It tends to be acral, so you see these photographs show a lot of hands and feet, and then the crusting in the mucosa. So some people have mucosal involvement and some people don't. So imagine Robin Hood from Robin Hood Men in Tights shooting his arrows at targets. Great movie. Still holds up. So the lesions aren't, some, aren't symptomatic. So remember, skin pain is characteristic of SJS. These people don't have it. To help separate it from things like urticaria, you can say, if I drew a mark around this spot here, would it still be there in two days? Or you could actually do that and hospitalize patients and see if the lesion persists, because individual lesions in EM persist for a week or so, whereas in urticaria, they're transient, they're gone within 24 hours. Lasts for a while, kind of the same time course as a viral exanthem lasts, two to four weeks or so. We used to think this was on the same spectrum as Stevens-Johnson syndrome and TEN. We now know we were wrong, so if you thought that, readjust your thinking. It's not. They share some characteristics, like they look similar under the microscope, but not in the same um, spectrum. So you just treat it symptomatically, treat the underlying infection if you can. So antihistamines and topical steroids and stuff can help. Um, and then some patients just get EM, 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 EM over and over again. And even if you can't pin a cold sore down ever, you should probably start them on something like valacyclovir or suppressive therapy just to keep it from happening. So one of its mimics is one of my favorite diseases, urticaria multiforme. So urticaria multiforme is like super hives. So in a normal hive, the skin is swollen. So think of a hive. The skin is raised up a bit because it's swollen. And that's because hives make the blood vessel leaky. And so serum can leak out into the skin and cause that swelling or edema. In super hives, the blood vessels are so leaky that red blood cells also leak out of the vessels. And so they give you this kind of bruised appearance. And they're kind of circular, sort of like erythema multiforme, which is how this one gets its name because it kind of looks like erythema multiforme, but it's not, it's just really bad hives. This is from one of my favorite publications on this condition. Well, my favorite publication on this condition, one of my favorite publications of all time. These are all patients who have urticaria multiforme. And there are some characteristics here that you can see that I think are fairly distinctive that should help you be able to differentiate it from something like erythema multiforme. So this child's back, there are some lines on it. What do we call that? Dermatographism, very good. So people with urticaria are often dermatographic, whereas people with EM aren't. So some people are just dermatographic at baseline. So it's not 100%, but it helps. People with urticaria multiforme have more edema of the extremities and of the face, especially compared to erythema multiforme. So you can see this child's cheeks and hands look a bit swollen. This um, publication also has a great table to differentiate them, and part of it is reproduced here. So if you, are, if you know about these conditions, then I feel like they're fairly easy to tell apart. So erythema multiforme has these really classic, quote, typical targets. 
all of the lesions appear in the first few days of onset, whereas in urticaria multiforme, they're constantly developing and going away. Again, urticaria, the lesions go away within 24 hours, though, because the red blood cells have leaked out and caused some purpura, the bruising can last for a bit longer. But the erythema and edema and hive-looking stuff should be gone within 24 hours. We talked about the edema. In EM, you can have mucosal involvement. You don't have that in hives, whether they're super or not. And hives are pretty common in kids, and the urticaria multiforme is fairly common as a result. Erythema multiforme is, I guess I would call it uncommon. It's not exactly rare, but it's not as common. So think about this diagnosis. Okay, anyone have questions about me there? All right, another case. 11-year-old boy. He has psoriasis, so he has a known dermatologic condition that he's plugged into dermatology. Um, he was started on methotrexate for his psoriasis, which is uh, immunosuppressive that's used in psoriasis fairly routinely. But his rash has been getting worse, and it's really bad in his groin, so that he doesn't really want to walk around just because it's uncommon. And dermatology took photos from a recent visit from two weeks before he presents to you in the emergency department. So this is what he looked like two weeks ago. You know, he's got these, again, we can practice our dermatologic lexicon. Erythematous, minimally scaly papules and plaques, especially involving the umbilicus, which is typical for psoriasis. So two weeks ago, according to the EMR, this is what he looked like. His scalp's pretty rough, his axilla looks kind of rough. And then today, he's obviously gotten a lot worse. And his poor groin. Can you imagine being this boy and having to walk around or use the bathroom or something? So this is psoriasis just gone bad. Call it pustular psoriasis. So you can see he's got these, this yellow crust here, which are the remains of pustules. And it has nothing to do with this methotrexate. Somebody once asked me that when I gave this lecture. Methotrexate takes two to three months to really kick in. So the fact that he started two weeks ago is, it hasn't done anything yet. This is just some kind of his disease progression in some way. So if people have really bad outbreak of psoriasis, try to get their pain under control if they have it, topical steroids for sure. And then cyclosporin is your friend for getting flared dermatoses under rapid control. Systemic steroids um, make things better in the short term, but make things worse in the long term. So stick with cyclosporin. And if you're not comfortable with it, well, Try to become comfortable with it or call somebody who is because it's the best choice. So we started him on cyclosporin. This is a patient I saw in fellowship and he was a lot better as you can see. The story with him is a bit more complicated. It actually got worse again and we decided he wasn't absorbing the cyclosporin well enough so we started him on a biologic medicine called ustekinumab or Stellar and that made him better. But anyway, um, cyclosporin is a good choice for people with bad psoriasis. Our next case is a five-year-old girl who shows up in the emergency room. She's got a bad rash. It's been worsening recently. And you look at her chart and you find notes from dermatology. Thanks, dermatology. She's got eczema, atopic dermatitis, but they note that it's fairly mild and controlled with the stuff that they have been using. Family says they use it sometimes. Maybe somebody has told them that it thins the skin or something. And so instead of using it twice a day, they use it like once every month or something like that. And this girl's rash is very itchy. So this is just super bad eczema. So people with atopic dermatitis can get pretty bad. 
Um, it can cause some significant lymphadenopathy, which you see in this patient. And then you also see that she has some significant xerosis. She's got eczematous papules scattered all over here. So flares of bad eczema happens. Sometimes bad enough that you feel like you want to hospitalize people to get them better. Sometimes bad enough that you want to hospitalize them so that you can prove to their family that if they do what you tell them to do, they will get better. So what should you do? Well, the same stuff that we usually do as an outpatient. So moisturize the heck out of them, topical steroids. These people look like they're having a great time wearing their sauna suits. It almost looks like they're having a little romantic interlude. So this is something we had in fellowship. I'm actually not even sure if we have them here. I don't think I've admitted any people for atopic dermatitis since I started two years ago. Uh, but sauna suits are, they look like pajamas made out of garbage sacks. So look a lot like that. Um, and they're what we use for wet wraps. So you can use, do wet wraps at home too. And if the parents don't have a sauna suit, then who does? Then you can just use damp pajamas. So basically you have the child soak in plain lukewarm, my favorite type of warm, water for about 10 minutes, get out, don't dry them off, just slather them with Triamcinol and 0.1% ointment head to toe, and then put on a sauna suit or put on damp pajamas and then dry pajamas or a sweatsuit over the top so they don't get chilled and then sleep like that. I was not a believer that the same mid-potency steroid that they've been using for years would create a significant difference just by doing this sauna suit approach until fellowship when there were a couple patients that we admitted at like 6 p.m. at night for bad atopic dermatitis. We did this approach and we rounded on them the next day at like, you know, 1 p.m. or something. They were already dramatically better, less than 24 hours after starting. So what reps were? Cyclosporin also works. So your approach for getting bad atopic dermatitis under rapid control, your choices are wet wraps and cyclosporin. Again, just like with psoriasis, systemic steroids make it better while you're using them, but make it worse overall in the long run. So please don't use systemic steroids, at least get it. It's over, if anybody remembers Homestar Runner. Yes. Thank you, <laughs> Teen Girl Squad. <laughs> Um, happy to take questions from the folks we have here physically or the folks who are virtual. Um, I don't know if anybody's sending in something with chat. This just flashed at me. Okay. Well, speak now or forever hold your peace or email them to me. Thanks for joining us, everybody. And that will do it for this bonus episode. If you would like to listen to more episodes, bonus or otherwise, you can, of course, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find our entire archive at our website, dermospherepodcast.com, which also has links to the original articles and is a good way to get in touch with us. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We are Dermosphere Podcast. And, of course, you can keep listening. Every two weeks, we come to your ears with discussions of some of the latest research that is especially relevant for clinical dermatology. We'll see you then.